Hi there, my name is Madeline Stutchberry. I'm a reporter at the Weekly Times newspaper and today I'm a guest on the Ag Watchers podcast with Matt and Andrew. Thank you so much for having me on today. Well, it's good to get another professional podcaster in a <laughs> podcast. Do you know, do you know Matt, Matt, I used to have a podcast. Years yeah, ago. no, it was one what, It was one you did while you were, mm. it, was, like, it was a short series, wasn't it? On um... Yeah, so I've done a few Bits of, I started a lot of my journalism in radio, in community radio stations and sort of around 2012 to 13, sort of around the boom of when podcasting became a thing, like around the time of Serial and This mm. American Life. Um, so I did a few podcasty bits and pieces through some radio stations I was working at. But then in 2015, 2016, the Community Broadcasting Association actually funded me to make a 10-part miniseries. And obviously at the age of like, 25 I was having some sort of existential crisis because they made it about um death which sounds kind of morbid but it was really interesting in terms of talking about cultural attitudes to death um spiritual ones um sort of agnostic um also just our practices and traditions around it and just being able to talk about it um in community and sort of from a literary perspective so yeah I was pretty proud of putting that together all by myself and um a few years ago, also at the Weekly Times, we had a podcast called The Mail Run, which I helped out with. So, yeah. But I, I really, I really enjoyed that. Se- I enjoyed that series on on death. Uh, oh, thank I, you. And it was uh, one of the few, actually, it was one of the few podcasts I've ever actually listened to. Uh, yeah, this is what makes me quite militant about podcasts, I think, because I, I feel like I, I love them so much and I really enjoy um, a really clever and engaging, basically, like, radio documentary. Um, and... There are so many you can find now that I just, for me, don't really scratch that itch. So mm. when you can, when you find a podcast that you like and you can really get stuck into it and listen to it, it's joyous. And you found one today. Yeah, no, I not only on have one. found one, I'm on, on one. one. <laughs> as featured, as featured on. Yes. Um, so, so we haven't just just because so, you're a podcast professional, we, we don't get no, away not with no. <laughs> so, well, actually, Matty, give us a quick intro into two year. Just sure. very, very like. 24 seconds. Okay, 24 <laughs> seconds. I'm a reporter at the Weekly Times. Um, I've been there for about nearly seven years now um, and covering lots of different rounds. Started off in the grains round and moved into livestock and now I'm sort of, I've, I've got a really great role where I can sort of write a lot of features and in-depth pieces, pieces that take a bit of time to read the reports and um, put together a, an image of what the story is. Um Outside of work, um, what do I do? I cycle a lot, like to be outdoors, eating, baking, that kind of thing. I just, um, yeah, I like I like all the vicissitudes of life in that way. Easy. That was that was yeah. twenty seven seconds, but no, well, that's to right. penalise me. Wait, I, can, I, can, <laughs> I can edit out later. Cut a few seconds off. So, Maddie, one of the things we've got to do is just test, make sure you're okay. Mm-hmm. So we are going to run some uh, mental health checks on you. Go for it. Um, we're going to run uh, six questions, statements, or words, and then you give us the first thing that comes to mind. Yep. Uh, we don't want you to think too much uh, about it. Just word association thing. Word association, sure. and then we'll assess your uh, mental fortitude and whether you're fit to continue. <laughs> Matt's. We can. We struggle to count to six. Uh, so Matt's going to keep a tally to make sure that we don't ask more or less. Matt, you go first. Oh, 
I'll fire it off with, I'll start with diversity in agriculture. Incomplete. Mm. Black pudding. Nothing. I've not tried it. (laughs) Uh, Media paywall. Tricky. Women in agriculture. Essential. Crocs footwear. Stella. Sourdough. Frustrating. (laughs) You started doing sourdough in COVID, didn't you? Technically, yes, but I would like it to be known that I started my sourdough starter in January 2020 prior to just by a whisker, but it technically wasn't a COVID-induced mania. Um, It just happened to coincide with it. So I've still got the same starter. That was was my next question. Have you still got the same starter? Oh, and it is thoroughly abused. I'm not very organised. So you're meant to sort of feed it once a week and really bake with Mm. it regularly. And mine just gets shoved in the fridge and forgotten about. I I sort of revive it, but she's still good. It's it's still kicking. So uh, I've had one running since, I think, 2015. Yeah, they're fine. Yeah, and I'm astounded that you can actually – that it, I'm a standard one that it doesn't actually go rotten very easily. Like it doesn't spoil no. very easily. Um, no, you, once can always, you can revive it. Yeah. yeah. And it, and like you said, if you keep it in the fridge, it, I reckon you only have to feed it maybe once every month and a half if it's in the fridge. Yeah. yeah. I am very much like every six weeks I'll go, I'm going yeah. to get back into making my bread. And you just forget, I don't know, you just forget about it. Well, I do anyway. There we go. Well, we've gone off on a tangent already. So for those listening, uh, welcome to the Ag Watchers spin-off show, Ag Watch Cooks, uh, with, with Maddie Stuckbury. <laughs> Bake Off. <laughs> the Great British Bake Off. Was that don't six- they call it some don't they call it in something different in America? It's like the baking show, something quite simple. Uh, well they've got to they gotta make it a bit simpler for over there, I guess. <laughs> I'm not commenting. <laughs> well, I'm only saying so- that because I'm banned from the USA, but anyway. So we had uh, we we saw an article you put out not long ago in Weekly Times that was one of the features you spoke about that you're right now the bigger kind of investigative type works on was looking actually at the board the high level kind of you know leadership side of agriculture and listed companies and you looked took a breakdown of do you want to give us a quick rundown of what that particular article was about and, and what you found? Sure, um, that actually came about from a conversation I had with my editor Wags, who suggested it'd be good to actually have a look at what the gender difference was at an executive level. I think the narrative around female representation in agriculture has been touched on before, and I've done stories about it in the past. But it was interesting to turn our attention to that sort of the nubby end of deci- you know executive decision making roles, mm. um, and it found that it's a very small representation of females at an executive level whether that's on an agricultural like board um whether that's on like a commodity board a you know like an industry body agribusiness um it it's something like and i'm just trying to refer back to the story here 
26 um, just, just just under 27 percent in terms of on just, the, yeah 26.8 percent um when you're having a look i guess also within the context of what female participation is in the ag workforce just broadly that's only at about 35 percent so it's not a case of um the same percentage of women are on ag boards and in, in executive positions as they are sort of broadly in agriculture the higher up you go, the less likely there are to be women in those positions. And there so, were a number sorry, of... Sorry, Matt, just go back. So sure. so 35% of the workforce, of the general workforce... The is whole workforce in ag is women. Yeah. Is women. Yeah, so, oh, so the workforce gender split in ag, forestry and fisheries um, in the 2022 to 23 financial year was 35%. So it's, so it's, so it's 26. Different. So it's slightly skewed less on the board level. Like, yes. Okay. But not, yeah. not not as much as that. I I would have thought women would make up sort of higher to f- closer to fifty percent of the workforce in in ag in ag. Yeah, nah. it's want- interesting, and I'd have to go back and find. I did a story a few years ago around International um, Women in Ag Day, and when it comes to say farmers, people who are working, they wouldn't count women. Farm. Like yeah, they wouldn't count if there's a husband wife team that run a farm. They probably wouldn't count the wife as a worker, even though they probably are doing a lot. Of work-related well, things on the farm. Back in 1994, up until 1994, women weren't legally allowed to list their to call themselves a farmer. <laughs> no, it was yeah, yeah. So it was, and so that's like so. In my family, we were on a farm at that stage, and when me and my brother were born, my mum wasn't technically a farmer, but at the time my sister was born, she could be. And I believe, I, I think, when it comes to actually people who identify their occupation as farmer, the gender um, parity there is a little bit better. I Mm. would have to look up the figures again. But when we're talking, I guess, broadly across agriculture, which when you think about it, it's not only being, you know, out in the paddock, you know, on the farm, you've got so many different um, sort of administration roles. You've got people who work Mm. in like R&D and science economy, et cetera. Mm. So, but still broadly across the whole industry, um, there is, there are definitely more males than females. Yeah. I would have thought, look, it's, it's interesting because I wonder if you look at the stats, like how many sort of women are making an income off farm as well. But and also, there are some statistics but also, around but also, right but also helping on the farm. Like, Something that was really interesting when I was having a look around with this story, and it was it quite quickly became a bit of a behemoth in a good way in mm. that it's not a simple story to tell. Um, something that I found quite interesting when I was having a look at this data and statistics is you can you also need to take in, into consideration the amount of, um, say, domestic duties that women tend to have mm. um, and the role of, like, child caring and, child, you know, and looking after family, et cetera. A lot of those unpaid duties still predominantly fall to women, even if you've got a couple who are both working and both employed full-time. Nine times out of ten, it's going to be the female in that dynamic who is doing a lot of the more domestic duties, and then that sort of it, that sort of feeds into their capacity, I guess, to take on a voluntary role um, with, say, a commodity group or whatnot, because you sort of run out of time in the day if you're mm. parenting and also working, etc. Yeah, you assessed, you looked at um, the breakdown of, say, board level positions for agricultural companies, and you said mm. those two. 26.7% or whatever it was. Um, but then you also compared it to the broader listed companies sector and, and like just outside of ag. Mm. Uh, where did that come in? What was the figure there? 
I'd have to go back and have a look. Um, I'm just having a look in this story here. I still didn't think it was 34 or it was similar. It was a similar breakdown to what the distribution was in broader ag. I think it was in the 30s mm, somewhere, but I couldn't quite remember is. exactly. 34, 35% of, of women on non-agricultural company boards. So, so it's a higher representation when you move outside, outside of ag in other industries, right? Yes, and it was interesting. I don't know if this is anecdotal or not. Um, there are a lot of... I'm just going through the table here of the companies that we looked at. And there are some where, like, say, for example, Maggie Beer Holdings is an AXX-listed company. has 60, really great... 60%, 60%, yeah? 60%, yeah. yeah. And that's interesting because, obviously, Maggie Beer is quite an iconic um, woman in that hmm. ag-slash-food industry. Um, I wonder if there are certain... Uh, commodities or sectors of agriculture that are a little bit more um, open to encouraging women to come up through the ranks or if it maybe women feel a bit more comfortable and safer in those sectors. That's purely, you know, speculative on my behalf, but you, mm. it's interesting. Oh, do you mean given that like, Maggie Beers, you know, came out of that hospitality kind of um, food service space? Um, and so you think that because the company in itself is making food-based products, that that's an easier avenue for women to represent themselves in or something? Not necessarily. could even just be the fact that it's a company that was established and run by quite an iconic woman. Mm, you yep. know, maybe that, that makes it a little bit more uh, potentially, I don't know, but look, they have really great female representation on their board. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And then you go down the list and you have a look. There are a number of companies, et cetera, that have zero women on their board. Um, and this is something that I put to a lot of these companies and and, um, and boards, it's, et cetera. It's, was, interest, it's interesting because sorry, because uh, you got going back to Maggie Beer, if you look mm. at like the list of them, like the top two or top four, mm. uh, I don't know who Ecofiber is, but the top, out of the top four, two of them are dairy. Yes. So yeah. Maybe it's a dairy thing. And the A2 Milk Company also, I think, we were just looking at their boards, but they also provided some information more broadly in terms of their broader um, employed work pool. Um, and they've got really great female representation across the company as well, um, which, they, yeah, which it's, it's interesting. And this is a question I put to a lot of these companies when I was doing the story was, because it's not necessarily a case of kicking everyone and saying you don't have enough women, at, you know, it might be a case that they don't have women approaching them or putting up their hand to apply for jobs etc like it what are there certain industries or companies or sectors that get more um more applications and more women sort of wanting to engage with them and are there others where it's not as accessible um and that's still a little bit unclear without wanting to hijack the the diversity narrative away because mm. women women and lack of women in some areas is, is a key aspect mm. but but you you had said at the outset with, with regards to the six senses i think your comment was incomplete when we spoke about diversity mm. in ag is mm. diversity is diversity or a diverse hiring policy is it just about employing more women or is it about other um you know kind of people the <laughs> minority groups like people with disability, people with, um, yeah. you know, um, like backgrounds or, or non-English-speaking backgrounds yeah. that come in as an immigrant. Are they, like Andrew, are they um, non-English-speaking backgrounds? Are, th are they part of that diversity mix as well or should they be Should we be also looking and saying how many people have we got at the board level that have a disability? So, mm. I definitely think that's a really valid point to make and I've done some stories in the past year or so having a look specifically at um, 
accessibility in agriculture. And I think the word there is accessibility. I I feel, this is a personal statement, that it should just be that the landscape is as accessible to anyone who wants to stick their hand up. Um, and I think the sentiment is there. I feel that most people who are involved in agriculture and the industry itself is divert, like, you know, is open to that as a concept. However, I don't believe that the current workforce frameworks, not just in agriculture, sort of in general, um, are not really accessible to a lot of people. And that stops people from being able to progress in their career or to even gain entry to. And that could be somebody who has a physical disability or potentially they have a geographical um, disadvantage. Maybe they live in the middle of whoop whoop somewhere and they can't actually get to town. Um, Whether it's a woman who maybe has had a few kids, wants to pick up the threads of her career and can't get affordable childcare, which means that she can go back to work or, you know, get involved in an, um, in an executive position. Um, or, I or, think that or they didn't have the right networks and didn't go to the correct yeah, elite school. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 that's I, not something I, I looked at. Yeah, I genuinely think that is uh, one of the biggest things in agriculture. In, in terms in, of like connectivity, connectivity, having the right networks is what gets you ahead. It's still a very much, I'm not saying old boys club, but many parts of the industry are the old boys club. Yeah, it's an interesting point. That's not, that's well, sort of, it wasn't really something I covered in this story, but it's an interesting point. Yeah, I just wonder story. when we when we look at these mm. things, and I've seen it. Like you see the dynamic of, and it's spoken about when it comes to parliamentary representation. Mm. The, the people, and you know, we are slowly moving towards. You've got senators like Jordan Steele, John, you know, that now is accessing mm-hmm. parliament with a, a clear disability. I'm sure there are other parliamentarians that have got other levels of disability or neurodivergent thinking or whatever, mm. but. You know, we should should as a target. Should we be as a society? This is a broader, more broader outside of ag. Should we be looking at what is the distribution of peoples of different types, or whatever mm. the dif- difference is, whether it's gender or or, or sexual orientation or whatever? Mm. We say within society, X percent of people are that type of cohort. Mm. Um, they they should be represented. You know, we should be aiming for that type of level of representation, so that you know whether it's a you know a leadership type position across companies or whether it's um you know parliamentary I think, leadership. I think, I think should, Matt, should they be representative? Like, should we aim for that as a goal? I think Maddie kind of answered that by saying, "I don't know if it's um it's not really a number. It's about making accessible and welcoming." Yeah, I personally yeah. think like I feel like I wouldn't want to be hired for a position just for the sake. So of it's not about a quota. It's not. It's yeah, It's not like having a quota. Say, okay, we have to. Well, let's just. Let me put this back on you in a way in terms of like, let's say let's say a, a company made it a rule that we have to hire 50% women, 50% men, no problem. Yep. And you put the women into that position, that's fine. It's not a sustainable framework if the actual industry and the workplace dynamic isn't accessible to that person. So you might be able to like say, yes, you can be our chief executive. It's five days a week. You're required to work this many hours, possibly outside of work. And if you are still the predominant carer of your children um Mm. or if there's no ramps to get into the building and you are unable to participate then i feel like that's an ineffective like the quota is sort of futile i Mm. i feel that and i also maybe personally feel that i wouldn't i'd feel like a little bit um uh, like i'd feel a little bit pandered to if i just found out that i was only hired for the sake of um 
a diversity sort of exercise. However, I think if we make it a more accessible playing field um, for all to participate in, then that will hopefully generate the sort of the, the organic sort of diversity that we're after um, because you can't, yeah, and I, I feel like it's dangerous territory to get into then to start distilling down representation based on like we need to have a person who's this type and we need to have mm. someone who's like this. Mm. Um, yeah. because I, I feel like the, and people are, people across community have a passion and an interest in agriculture. Um, if you make the industry accessible to them, then the opportunities are endless, I think. Yeah, I mean that, and that's the key because I'm not, I'm not personally a big fan of quota, and I, I think, yeah, you should always be looking for the top candidates, irrespective of who or what they are. Yeah, you just would but hope then, that the top candidates are a diverse pool of people to choose from. Correct, and so, if they're not, if if you're finding they're all coming through with the cookie cutter, same type, you know, white privileged male type person or something, yeah. then, then. Or even white privileged person, you know, because because I think people mm-hmm. think sometimes when people say diversity, they just straight away assume diversity means more, more women, yeah, mm-hmm. which isn't it's the not. case, right? Yeah. Um. So it's about, like you're saying, creating creating the 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 foundations of allowing those additional types of people to be uh, available in the pool of their own right, like I, I to support yes, a, gra- a ground up thing. Yeah. I'll give you an example. Uh, I'll go back to Scotland in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and probably earlier. when Europe... Scotland invented diversity. Is that what you're going to say? That... No, I was going to go the opposite way. We oh, okay. uh, we invented sectarianism and uh, <laughs> uh, lack of diversity. So obviously there was issues between Protestants and Catholics. Yeah. And so when you're applying for jobs, a lot of the advice was not to put your secondary school. Oh, because they would tell what... Well, if you went to St. Joseph's, Gotcha. Yeah. You're, you're clearly most likely going to be a Catholic, which is not true because obviously you could go to schools if you're Protestant, vice versa. But mm. typically, if you went to St. Joseph's, you're Catholic. If you went to a grammar, you were Protestant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people would judge based on that job. And I remember going to interviews in Belfast uh, to interview staff for like working on docks. And people who were on the interview panel would be like, I wonder if he's a Catholic or not. Yeah, that's interesting. And that that was 2007, 2008. So that wasn't I think also that like long. and that sort of points to if you focus too much I think on um the defining features of somebody you sort of don't see them as, as an individual. You sort of see them as the marker of um what makes them different to the standard, I guess. So I would yeah, I think it's a, like I think it's I think a fair and equitable way of addressing these sort of pro- like these sort of barriers is um, there needs to have we need to have a broader look at what the actual industry and the framework and the environment is, and if that in itself is conducive to from the ground up across the whole industry, if that is conducive to anyone and everyone participating, mm. uh, and I don't feel like it is at this point in time. There are still um, barriers, whether they're like logistical ones in terms of being able to do a particular job within certain hours, or like some people are like geographically isolated, and sometimes also you don't feel comfortable in certain situations, and you're not going to participate in that part of industry. Like we need to sort of look at that. It's a cultural thing and an attitude thing as well. I think. Wait, can you can you elaborate on that when you say you yeah, sometimes you just don't feel comfortable? How how, how do you mean? Oh, like 
Well, like for example, and like so for context, I am from a farming family. I'm a regional girl. Um, I'm quite comfortable going to say livestock sales into the sale yards, but there have been a number of occasions where in my capacity as a reporter, I've been literally manhandled by I've had agents grab me by the shoulders and move me out of the way. And it's like, it, it, that's not a pleasant feeling. I don't mind so much, but I don't think that, that that wouldn't happen to a male counterpart of mine. And you could understand if you were, say, somebody who hadn't had experience in that environment, you could easily think, oh, I don't really want to go back and do that. Yeah. And so you, that means that that is not an environment that that person wants to be in. And I also don't think it means, you know, you don't have to like pander to women in that regard. It's like maybe just don't touch people when they're just trying to do their job. Just, you know, just, it's uh, pretty simple. Yeah. Move, move out the way, pal. Oh, yeah. Say, so can you please move? Or if I get that it gets hectic, it's like, just yeah. say, tell me to move or whatever. Like, that's fine, but you don't need to like lay hands upon me. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, oh, Lisa, so, didn't, Lisa didn't give you a little zap with the electric truck. With the cattle prod. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so like it's, yeah. When when you were like, obviously, Maddie, you did it, obviously interviewed and you chatted to a lot of these companies, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. What was the, like, there's a couple of organizations there that had zero female representation at the board. Mm-hmm. I think one in one of the state bodies, maybe. Mm-hmm. I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. No, there was a, yes. no, there was one of the farming orgs, I think. Yeah. yeah PPSA. I have a feeling it was mm-hmm. South Australia, yes. Yeah, PPSA, I think it was, yeah. So what what is the response to them in terms of what, what um, was their sort of view on it? I feel like the broader sentiment was that they weren't getting the applications from women for these jobs and that they sort of would would consider a woman if they if a woman had put her hand up. Um Cattle Australia they have limited female representation. I believe they've also just hired, um, just appointed a new chair or executive. Um, yeah, correct. That's yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah. David, David Foote's um, David been Foote's... replaced. Yeah, he's now he's now stepped down as chair and and um, yeah. Oh, the, and so, like twelve from, months um, ago, David said some comments in an article, which I think um, garnered a bit of um, commentary outside uh, of the article. Yep. yep. Um, but the general thrust of it is that he seemed to have the opinion that, you know, w- women are welcome in Cattle Australia and that, you know, they were, they, they're looking at increasing their representation, like they've got a plan in place. However, they didn't have any applications from any female candidates. Um, and this is where I feel it's an interesting conversation and lots of people I spoke to sort of said, you know, we need to encourage women and we need to rally behind them and support them, which I agree with. However... I do also feel that it's also putting the responsibility back on the woman to be the the agitator for change in the industry. I think that an organisation or a company, et cetera, has the capacity to sort of meet meet you halfway. And if it's a case of, okay, well, we didn't actually get any female applicants, how, you know, are we we advertising in the right way? Are we reaching out to the right groups? Um, what is what is the dynamic of the position we're offering? Is actually yeah, is, is the role is it... stru- yeah, is the role structured around a way that is conducive yeah. to women? Do we have yeah. our own childcare plans that yeah. can help that type stuff, or can is we there do flexible... meetings online? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. A, yeah, and so that sort of thing. Whereas, like, you could I know for myself, like looking at you might look at um, a, a job or a university course or an event you want to go to, and you go, that sounds really good, and you're like, that's actually just not going to work because I've got to be back and I've got to do the childcare pickup and I have to figure out, you know, dinner for the next night or whatever it is. And you sort of go, oh, I'm not going to bother. And so you don't. Mm. 
And that's yeah. a, that's another thing too, because you've you've recently, or when I say recently, in the last year or so, you've moved from being more urban living to mm-hmm. more regional living. Have yes. you noticed? Did you notice a change in facilities and those types of things? Just being that that bit further away, having to, mm-hmm. you know, is it is obviously I believe childcare type scenarios mm-hmm. are more difficult in the in the mm-hmm. regional settings to to get access to that type of stuff. Have you noticed yeah. a big a big shift of just that availability of support services now that you're living regionally yeah absolutely and like it's a case of I grew up regionally so it wasn't sort of a surprise but um going to we had a really great experience when we were living in the suburbs of getting my child into daycare quite easily I returned to work um eight months postpartum which it was a bit shorter than a lot of other people take um and but it was sort of fine in terms of I got childcare we got into our sort of little routine and I was really supported at work and I was able to sort of get back into it. We moved regionally and there was a wait list in terms of being able to put my child into childcare. So that you sort of say, oh, well, that's fine. Um, but there was a few months there where I was working from home and I'd have one of the grandparents over to help out, but you would just work in between nap schedules and you'd work late at night and you're also still trying to like have a relationship with your partner and, you know, have friendships and take time out for your own health and like cook dinner or like just sit down for a second it was really hard um luckily we're in a better spot now and my child has got some ongoing days of daycare and we're in a nice little routine so many people don't have that the wait lists personally that I encountered were like a year long um and there are so many reports that just show regional Australia regional remote Australia is really a bit of a childcare desert when it comes to having staff to run the facilities and then enough places for kids. Um, It's not affordable for a lot of people as well. Like if you've got farming is an interesting one because it's obviously quite a like you've got a lot of people who are cash poor, asset rich. On paper though, when you do your means test, it sort of isolates them from being able to access affordable childcare. Um, So that's another further barrier as well. And I was talking to somebody last week who's a producer and also a mother to a couple of children. And she raised a really good point where she's like, it's also we're talking about increased awareness of farm safety and having little kitties running around during harvest is not the best idea. But if you don't have family around to help out or if you don't have childcare, um, you've kind of got no choice. So Mm. that's where I think in terms of accessibility across agriculture, there's a lot of room to improve. And that's not just like in in executive boardroom it's like on farms in communities i think it's a positive story in that we get the whole the whole cohort of industries and communities have got so much to gain we're like this is it it benefits everybody and i guess but i think it's part of a broader comment like a broader story yeah i guess that's the issue with the childcare though is the fact that it's a symptom of childcare is a symptom of declining populations we've got those those areas like if you think like you're in a decent sized town, yeah, mm. but you go further out, towns get smaller. Mm-hmm. The scale to actually have a childcare center is just mm-hmm. not there, and that's just well, that's exactly. the same. it goes beyond that. Then it goes into medicine, the, the, teaching, the primary school, the high school, mm-hmm. the the medical services, dentistry, all that kind of stuff, and mm-hmm. as, diminishes and as, quickly, right? And as yeah. farms get bigger and mm-hmm. requ- and use bigger equipment and require less staff, there's less people in the area, so it's a sort of a it's a catch 22 of the success of larger scale farms mm. is that we can't expect there to be childcare at the same level as you have in a city where you've got 
in Melbourne, what five yeah. and a half million people. You're just it's not going to get the same services in Quambatuck. Yeah. But is that is that just a is that mean then you just accept it? And we've seen like people like Julian Fennell that speaks a lot about remote. I think there's a group called Remote Australians Matter that she speaks on behalf of sometimes as well. And just you know, she lives in a fairly remote area. And she was just on, well, on the AB. I consider it to be a very remote area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More than more than just your standard little country town somewhere. Mm-hmm. Further away than that, um, you know, is that is it just you get you know you're living in that you, you've oh, not not that you've yeah. or well, some people do say this. Well, you've chose to live there, or you you're living mm-hmm. in a nice rural environment. Uh, we have to slog it out in the fast paced city and put up with traffic and all that. You've got a lovely scenery to look at. So that's just part mm-hmm. of part and parcel. You live further out, so you just got to accept that you're not going to get the same level. Is it is, is it as simple as that? Or there's no votes, not as many votes in those areas. So the money is going to be always directed towards where the votes are and where the people are, and that's in the urban areas. Look, that's that's a really interesting point, and I'm not sort of politically savvy enough to sort of comment with any authority there. But I think um, one thing that has been interesting in terms of looking at um, regional populations is that off the back of COVID, there was a regional migration. People moved out to regional, not so much remote areas, but more regional areas, um, and that migration although it has really backed off, it is still there. People are still making moves to regional areas. Um, And look, a part of me is really cynical. We're having grown up in the country where I'm like, you know, yeah, like you have to drive to Melbourne sometimes to go to the hospital or or the specialist. Um, However, there is enough sort of data and commentary around certain things like, say, access to mental health services, um, GPs, childcare. Enough communities are talking about it and calling out for some form of assistance and and infrastructure that I think it's valid to look at that. And I'm sure that a solution that would work in Kwambatook would be different to say somewhere in like the Latrobe Valley or Bendigo. Yeah. Because, but I do think that, um, and I think having a bit of um, a dynamic approach to it and being open to like maybe potentially even like community driven initiatives as to how, like what the solution could be, for example, grain growers, I believe have been doing some work in this space when it comes to the childcare accessibility, looking at different ways that they can themselves provide some community childcare for the people in those areas, whether that's like hooking in with existing services or utilising like town halls on a certain day. Um, And when you think about it also like specifically childcare, like that in itself is an industry where people can be employed. Um, Early childhood education is a really skilled workforce um, and that's one of the reasons why there are areas that are lacking is that they don't have staff. So I think it's a broader conversation and needs to be a sort of holistic look at um, what is needed, what's the demand and what is the solution for this area in order to remedy that. Do you think that when grain growers made that move to focus in on things like childcare? Because mm. the regional oh. Australia Institute's done a lot on that. Yeah. Yes, they but have. I, was wondering, I was wondering, do you reckon the broad, you know, kind of um, group of grain producing peoples and farmers and that, do you reckon they would have looked at that in surprise when grain growers focused in on childcare and thought, or was it something that they were, you know, that, that would have had support from the from the membership it just you know, or you know, were they staying in their lane, or is it is it for places like regional Australia to look at that stuff, or, or is it okay that a, a group like grain growers have targeted yeah, that as a, as a as a as a kind of key key point for them to look, address? I'm not sure what this. I'm, I I don't know what the sentiment is there. I've only sort of 
interacted with grain growers themselves. However, mm. um, you know, just speaking sort of to other people and other women in other organisations, et cetera, I feel like there is this um, idea that maybe these maybe these conversations about things like childcare or mental health services, et cetera, feel a little bit disconnected from agriculture. Um, however, potentially the discussion that needs to play, take place now is how all these various sort of like social issues do directly impact ag as in like an economic issue in mm. terms of like an accessible workforce, a safe workforce um, and, and communities as well, like resilient communities. I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think I, I don't really know what the solution is. I think it's the solution is <laughs> like the solution for childcare is the same problem we have with getting sheep shearers. Yeah, exactly. Get, getting the footy team, getting doctors, getting nurses, getting yeah. everything. It's a problem of regional location and yes. and scale. And I don't know how how you solve that other than... I Yeah, and like I feel maybe naive, naively so. I feel sort of optimistic though about it in terms of ag in itself as an industry and regional communities are really dynamic and they're good at problem solving, hmm. roll with the punches, resilient, all those words get thrown around. But I do think that... I feel like one of the biggest barriers at the moment is just being able to have these conversations in a sort of, um, just sort of an engaged, open way and talking about the impact of something that may seem unconnected to industry and and how we can all all benefit from some potential ideas and some potential changes. I've got so a solution. Feel, yeah, hit me with it. I've got a solution. Okay. Te- technology, right? Mm-hmm. Right, so I, I I did a marketing course at uni, and they talked mm-hmm. about Disney VHSs. And with Disney VHS, they said that one of the benefits of Disney VHS is it's a babysitter. You give them the, the baby yeah. the Lion King, and then they then they watch that, and you can just leave them in front of the the screen. That was in the eighties and nineties, yeah. Mm. We've moved on from that, yeah. So what about virtual reality? Wait, an AI nanny? No, no, a headset. Just get the child, put them in a headset, sit them in a the corner. Have you got children though? Yeah, like you know, do your kids sit still? <laughs> true, it's true. <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm just thinking out of the box because mm. you said that people in agriculture think of think of solutions, yeah. and that's one. But this is the thing. I think, like, the, just I, I personally think just having conversations about it at this point in time and not feeling stonewalled or as though it's not an important conversation to I have. Kind of, I kind of, of feel like I've been stonewalled here on that solution. I don't think people are taking <laughs> If you want to plug your kids into a headset, you can knock yourself out. My kids are not going to do that. <laughs> well, in my day, when I was six, I was sweeping chimneys. <laughs> so we'll just bring back, what, the Victorian workhouse. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep them busy. Keep them busy. Keep them busy. The... Keep them, keep them good off old, the good old In this economy... <laughs> Just let it be yeah, known yeah. we're not endorsing child labour. Yeah. Going- Sorry, I don't want to be clear. Maddie's not endorsing child labour. No, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, endorsing yeah. it. No, that's not a policy. But, yeah, look, it's an interesting thing. This is where, like, having doing these stories and, like, in recent months I've done some reporting in, uh, yeah, the female representation in ag, childcare, even things like pharma and regional um, mental health. And... Overall, it does paint this picture, a sort of a grim picture in terms of like lack of access to um, services and assistance, etc. However, I do feel sort of broadly optimistic that 
um, the right sort of conversations are taking place and the sentiment is there. Um, we just need to start thinking of some solutions. And I don't know. I don't know what that would look like. Um, virtual reality. Virtual reality. <laughs> How are you going well, well, to? Genuinely, I think virtual reality or augmented reality does have a space for medicine <laughs> and, and remote medicine. So communicate like a lot of medicine, mental health, especially like psychiatric services, psychological services. Well, we've services. seen telehealth has been really valuable. Not so good for uh, stitching somebody's leg up. No, um, sometimes you need to go and get your head glued Edward. because you've donged it on a silo or something. So, but, yeah, I get that. But they're, but they're sort of – and obviously I'm wearing this very attractive uh, shirt from This is a Conversation Starter, mm-hmm. which was one of our previous podcasts, and they offer counselling over the phone or text message. That mm-hmm. is a solution to that problem. Absolutely. Because you're not going to get a psychiatrist at Cromatuck. And so this is sort of on a tangent but re- related. Like We, have we, done we, a, a we love of, tangents. We love really a tangent. Like, Tangents um, always welcome. Have done some stories in the regional and rural mental health space, and I don't think I think regional and rural Australia is so diverse anyway. Like I'm from South Gippsland, it's a very different space and vibe to the Wimmera and the Mallee. No, no one's better, or you know, it's just there's different industries, different you know country we're on. It's we're all, but we're all part of regional Australia. The unifying factor is that we're not based in a metro setting with mm. easy accessibility. Um, I do think that solutions and services are going to vary from town to town and that that should be the case because every community is different, has different needs, has different populations, have different, you know, accessibility structures, etc. And someone I was speaking to a few months ago in relation to they just established, I can't remember exactly who it was, but they'd established a regional and rural pharma mental health sort of like um, mobile service and they were going to be touring around sort of regional New South Wales in the coming weeks um, tapping into these different towns. Now that's a solution that they've come up with that they found the community was sort of calling out for and different part of the state might adapt to something else. Mm. Um, I think that and this is where I sort of think that having conversations is the number one starting point because people will put forth ideas or talk about what their needs and their accessibility issues are and a solution will be made to remedy that. Um, yeah, like some people, as you've said, this is a conversation starter is really great because some people will really benefit from being able to just shoot off a text message or, you know, call a hotline. Um, there might be other regions where it's like we have an acute need for um, more almost like emergency response, trauma response in that particular region, for example. And so like a text message hotline is not going to work there. Um, Yeah, I think that ag and regional communities are smart enough and dynamic enough that we can come up with the ideas and solutions. And the trouble is getting it, say, let's funded or um, ongoing support. And that's another, that's a whole other story. I've I've got an idea for you, Maddie, yeah? Yeah. Is this, take this one to WAGS and say, (laughs) you want to go to Scotland. And yeah. do some research and to see how they are solving because we've got the same problems in Scotland. Like mm. I, I was remember, I can't remember where it came from, but there was somebody talking about uh, you can't get a GP appointment. Mm-hmm. So the guy saw a GP on Tinder, wasn't attracted, but said, "Well, at least it's easier than getting a GP appointment." Yeah, but it's the reality. You can't get a GP appointment in my town, mm-hmm. and it's got thirty six thousand people. Prob- mm. Probably sixty thousand within a thirty minute drive. 
you can't get GP appointment. Yeah, that's uh, wild. Banking, like a lot of like the I know a lot of banks in regional Australia are closing mm. down. Regional Scotland, they're all closed down. Yeah. But what they do is mobile banking. So mm. a truck might come every Wednesday to Castle Douglas, every Tuesday mm-hmm. to Dalbeatie, every Thursday to A, every Friday to Ecclefechan. But what that means is you can't just be able to... There's a town in Scotland called Ecclefechan. Yeah. Right, okay. That's worthy enough of a trip in its own right. Just say to Jetways, I want to put that on my expense report. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't pick Absolutely. up on the town called A, which is just the shortest. A? A. A. How do you spell A? A E. Jeez, okay. Um, and these are all all towns in Southwest Scotland. <laughs> and if anyone's looking for a Airbnb, mm-hmm. uh, I'll put the link on the bottom of this uh, podcast. Uh, I've lost my train of thought. No, but the, but the point is people have to realise that they can't expect, you know, mm. nine to five bank access in a country town. So they've been able to adapt and say, well, okay, well, I need to do my banking either online, which most people are doing now anyway. If I need to physically go in, I'm going to have to do it on a Tuesday. Mm. At that time. So maybe that's where these services need to sort of pull themselves together and say, well, actually, on a Tuesday, that's when the mental health counsellor comes. That's when the GP comes. That's mm. when the bank. So I go into town on a Tuesday. And also, yeah. also elicits a community spirit because everyone's in town at the same time. You you did some work, Matty. You mentioned before about that vast numbers of people that moved from through COVID mm. moved from the city to the country and some stayed mm. and some now have a blended mix where they're still out in the country but they have to go back to town once mm-hmm. a week for their main job that was town-based originally. Or, or um, But you've done a bit of work in that space. It was, mm. was some of those people that had, had gone out that were always – had originally been urban people that had gone and lived in the country for the first time ever, were they surprised by the the lack of services that they saw when they got there? Like, do you think that um, was a, a bit of a rude awakening? Look, I'm not sure in terms of like from a data perspective, but I can speak anecdotally. Um, I have a friend who did that, moved down um, to my neck of the woods here during COVID and lives down here now. Um, full-time, goes back up to Melbourne every couple of weeks for work, um, absolutely loves the lifestyle, you know, surfs all the time, you know, riding through the hills, or you know, like loving, you know, living the dream. However, they'll still go and see their doctor in Melbourne because they've just said it's really hard to get an appointment down here. And like where I live in South Gippsland, we're only like under two hours away from Melbourne, which to me as a country kid, like that's not a big drive. Um, that's fine. It's pretty connected to the city, I think. Um, and I do think that this friend of mine has sort of, it's not a case of it being like a rude awakening, but just like has accepted that there are some times where you just have to go to Melbourne because you can't get what you need or want down here. Um, yeah, I, I would be interested in terms of, I don't know if the regional Australia Institute have done any statistics or any, um, surveys in that space. Um, but also it, I think from memory, a lot of the regions where people were moving to were sort of like regional hubs or regional cities, you know, talking about like um, Ballarat and Bendigo. Yeah, yeah. the Ballarats and Bendigos. Which, Marsh. Yeah, so you're still sort of connected to um, a major capital city. You might have public transport infrastructure, like you can catch the V-line um, and have sort of pretty good hospital and healthcare services as well. So, look, I can only speak anecdotally in that space um, and even just returning home to Gippsland in the last year, um, having grown up knowing that you have to go to Melbourne for bits and pieces. But there are times where you sort of go, oh, God, like I, you know, it is, I have to plan a day now to go 
into Melbourne to get to do that appointment um, because I can't get the scan I need down here or whatever it is. So, you know, it swings and roundabouts. Like when we were living in the suburbs, there were so many things that I disliked about, even though we were in right, you know, the heart of Melbourne in that regard, um, you could get into the city on a train really easily. You've got every single cafe around you that you could possibly want. You can get an appointment at the doctor. We had really good access to childcare, but I didn't feel like I was part of a community. I wasn't near mm. my family. Um, you know, you, it's for me, I'm happy to take the lack of resources and infrastructure for the overwhelming benefits that country living has. Mm. No, fair enough. We should, yeah. um, I think we've probably, we've probably covered that one. I, I wouldn't mind moving across. We mentioned about the media paywall yeah. in the, in the, um, in the sixth sense as well, and that's that's kind of an ongoing issue as well as media has mm. moved. I think Weekly Times being a News Corp group, News Corp one of the first from memory in that in that journalism space in the print journalism to go to a subscription type model. Mm-hmm. Um, but do, do you still are people used to that now? Are they realising now you just got to for, for content or at least you know if you're getting something that's of value, you, you're going to have to be accepting that you're paying for it. Or do you think in agriculture we still expect no, to be getting to, unless you go to episode three dot net? <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean you know it was that old adage that, that for that kind of information. All the, the AgWatchers podcasts. Yeah, they're all free. So, of course, so are but... you are, so are you saying you just said that if you want quality information, you got to pay for it. Forget no, that's the, well, that's free. So you're saying ours is, the, ours is rubbish. That's the view. That's the view. I'm not prescribing that view. I'm saying that's something what people consider that you know, or at least if you're going to a subscription service, the reason why you might do it is because you're realizing you're getting something extra. Right, because there's still there's still ABC and other free yeah. media services out there. But do you think yeah. people are, are used to that concept now? Um, no, I don't think they are, and that's fair. Um, and it is a pretty dynamic landscape when it comes to media. That some publications, The Guardian, for example, is mm. a sort of voluntary subscription mm. model, but you can still um, access it. My personal stance on it is that, and like my whole career has been in the paywall industry. I've not known anything different. Um, and then before I worked for the Weekly Times, I was working for a local paper that didn't even at the time have a website. <laughs> so ultimately every single story that I wrote would be published in a format that somebody had to pay for. Mm. Um, and ultimately I think that what we publish on our, what we publish on the website is also available in print. I understand if people don't want to buy a subscription like this. There's, uh, there's plenty of times where I've gone to click on an article for something and it's behind a paywall um, and you think, oh, look, I'm not going to bother. Um, but say, for example, The Guardian's really interesting. They'll show you throughout the year how many articles, articles you've clicked on um, and sort of encourage you to subscribe. And I think like that, it, I think if you're having multiple interactions with a particular publication or medium um, and that is behind a paywall, um, I think it shows that you're trying to interact with that content. Wikipedia does the same, I think. Once a year, they'll do like a subscription raise and, yeah. they'll, and they'll show you how many articles you've read and say, please, yeah. please support us. I think, and this is just me speaking very personally and very biased in that like myself and my colleagues are all skilled individuals. We've either even done a university degree even rags. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to rag on him. But like this is it, like you've got somebody there who's got 20 years of experience in not only journalism but in the ag industry um, and is doing their job. Um, and I 
feel that it's fair to be compensated for your job. Mm. Um, it's we're not just writing stories. Is it like, for example, this women in ag feature that was a few months in of work. Um, it was a lot of collaboration with my editors and my chief of staff. It was a lot of going through data. It was a lot of speaking to people. It was a lot of writing. Like I wrote about three drafts of this story. It's a lot of fact-checking. It's a lot of speaking to people to get some context and some ideas about what the sentiment is. You know, the writing of it is actually kind of the easy bit. Um, Mm. I feel that in order to preserve quality journalism, you have to pay journalists. And you have to pay, like, and I also think that if you don't want to have a digital subscription, that's fine. You can buy the paper for $3.50 on a Wednesday and that story will be in there. That's t- absolutely fine. But um, I don't, I wouldn't ask a doctor <clears throat> to give me a free consultation. Like, unless, they have unless, to be compensated. Unless you're in the UK and you could rely on NHS. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, or if you found the doctor on Tinder, then you might be able to ask. Yeah, look, free, so maybe yeah. I've been doing the wrong thing. So... Uh, <laughs> I give an yeah, example. I, I I've got a digital subscription for the Weekly Times yeah. and the ACM and a few others because mm-hmm. uh, I, I read a lot. Yep. Um, I used to have a physical subscription to the Weekly Times, mm-hmm. uh, but I actually switched. Do you know the reason why I switched to digital? Because why? Because I no longer have a wood burning stove. So you don't need the paper. <laughs> I don't need the paper, and it's well. Look, I don't. I don't get the co- the hard copy of the paper a lot, but I do read the paper on my iPad every every Wednesday when it comes out. Um, another thing that I've actually really liked subscribing to because I had so many different subscriptions everywhere, like you know, New York Times and this and that, mm. rah rah rah, and they'd come up for renewal every year, and I was getting a bit overwhelmed. Um, and this sounds like a plug, but it's not. Um, Apple News have actually got a really good subscription model. Like you pay a flat rate per month, okay. and you have access to like all these different titles um like press reader because press reader is similar because i used to use that to get access to my old local rag in dumfries yeah exactly like this if i go into apple news like you can read like is it is it it limited do you only get certain number on each one or is it just unlimited unlimited so you can get copies of the newspaper you can get full copies of magazines like i'm like you can get time magazine New York Magazine, National Geographic, Women's Weekly, House and Garden, um, do you know Runners how World UK. Do you know how expensive magazines are now? Like that, that's it the one thing. Expensive, I, yeah. That's the one thing I noticed is the differences. Like the UK still has is heavily. Everyone buys a newspaper still. Yeah. And magazine sections are huge. Mm. And I bought a magazine like to read on the plane home. I actually bought mm-hmm. this one here, uh, part of the Monocle, the Forecast. Oh, I like that magazine. Yeah, yeah, but it's how much was it? Aussie dollar, twenty five dollars. Yeah, gee, for a magazine. I'm like, yeah, okay, it's it's a good read, uh, but geez, that's expensive. Like, I used to mm. buy I used to buy three or four magazines a week. And yeah, I love buying magazines still, but it's like a treat. Like, I'll wait for the copy of the monthly to come out, and I'll like go down and get it. And it's like my sort of like, I do like still buying physical media. But I like my biases. I'm a journalist. Like, you know, of course, mm. I'm going to like buying the newspaper and such. So, um, but yeah, like I frequently have people asking to have copies of an article, you know, from behind the paywall. Um, and I get it. Like you want to, but, but also like I need to be paid for my work. <laughs> and it's just, um, I wouldn't ask. Well, well you, could, you, could just you, say, you could just say to them, well, can I have one of your sheep? No, oh. but but it's the same principle. Yeah, like we, I, you know, principle. something that's been spoken about lately. You know, something that's been discussed lately is 
um, obviously this ACCC inquiry into um, the supermarket supply chain mm-hmm. and producers are saying that they're not being paid, you know, a fair amount at the farm gate versus what's being sold at the checkout. Um, you know, producers know the value of what their work is worth and they know, you know, if inputs vary, if input costs increase, if you have to pay more for labour, of course your product is going to cost more. Um, yeah, like I, a lot of work goes into what we do to be accurate and to sort of really advocate for regional people and to get information and the, the truth out there. Um, but journalism takes time and it takes work. Um, and if, if you're not, if you're not going to pay for it, then, you know, they just won't be that information in the future. Well, but then the likes of the ABCs, they're reporting and they're obviously government funded yes. journalists. Um, yeah. Should, should, should they, like, do they make life difficult for, for a subscription model type system or like, or is it okay that we've got ABC government funded journalism for free mm. or part of our tax money pays for it? I should qualify. Yeah. Well, that's it. We all pay for it. Yeah. So, oh, so, speak, speak so yourself, is... I don't make any money, so I don't pay any taxes. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I'm just, I mean, should, should, should all media be behind a paywall or, or should we still have some media that is, um, Oh, I'm, free, I'm, free all to access. For, I'm all for um, government media, like in terms of like government funded, you know, accessible media. ABC is very important. Um, SBS. Um, yeah, it's all part of the dynamic media landscape, I think. Um, it, but yeah, like we ultimately like the Weekly Times is a newspaper that's been around for more than 150 years. Um, you can still buy it every Wednesday. Um, we have a digital platform as well. Um and that's just another avenue for people to access our content. Because there aren't many now, in terms of like commercial operators, there aren't many like ACM papers. They went behind the paywall mm-hmm. a, a year over a year ago now, wasn't it? Yeah, was it two, nearly two, kind of two, two? Two years ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, like but there's not like like the ABC would be the only regional rural reporters, that, and and the Guardian you mentioned, Guardian. of course, they have a, a a kind of a. It's a, it's a free model, but they ask for donation or whatever. Yeah, and that's that so also like my understanding as well as say the regional network or the rural network that's by The Guardian, that's funded by an ongoing um, philanthropic yeah, arm. And so the, the issue there is that, you know, I would, that could be, a, if it's funded by philanthropy, that could also not be an ongoing enduring um, source of income in order to provide that service. Like, I don't know, like I... Um, I don't have any sort of long-term solutions in terms of like the sustainability of the media landscape, but I do think to go back to the word diversity, like all the different accessible models need to be there. Um, But paywalls are just going to, no one's going to, no one's going to go back on having a paywall now. Like it's, that's just the way the internet works now. (laughs) You'll often still see though on social media. And that's the other thing I guess we haven't touched on that, that there's the social media, which is not real journalism mm. in the old, old school journalism, but there's a lot of, I guess, for want of a better descriptor, content, whether it's mm. good or, or, or valid or mm. accurate content, it's still content. But mm. you do see a lot on social media where, the, you know, we might post a piece that that, mm. that we've been featured in or something and it's behind a paywall and you post it on social media and some invariably someone will come back saying, oh, it's behind the paywall, um, you know, I can't access it and there's a grumpiness about it. Um mm. Yeah, do you think that's fair and reasonable, or or should people just be saying, well, if you want, if you want this, you know, to be around long term and sustainable, you, you know, mm. it has to be paid for. It's, you can't just expect these things for nothing. 
I think my personal take on it is if you're attempting to interact with something and it's asking for payment, you're clearly trying to engage with that content of some sort. Like it's something that is of interest to you and that you would consume. Um, I think, and I don't know if there's capacity technologically speaking for this, but like I'd be down with like a pay-per-view a micro, you, what you said, micro, it's micro, micro transactions. Yeah, it's like, let's say there's an, an article in the New Yorker or whatnot that I really want to read. I'd happily pay $5 to have access to that for 48 hours or something. Like it's, I'll pay to have to pay for that. Some of them are starting to do it. And I think now with the phones, like yeah. that, that ability to do like a Apple Pay, just click on it. And mm. like, I, I think... Yeah, I think like I've done it in the past. I don't want a New Yorker subscription. I don't yeah. want it to pay a year, but I might want to read that one article. But I think yeah. like going back to that, what you mentioned before about like physical transactions, yeah, physical mm. asset versus digital products. Mm. Like I noticed you've got a bunch of books behind you. I've got a bunch yeah. of books here. I've yeah. got a I've got a Kindle uh, yeah. I bought in two thousand and nine, and I've used it for about five hours since then. Because I like. See, I the, just bought a Kindle and I've been using it every day. I just like the physical book. Mm. Um, I used to have, you know, I've still got buckets of well, boxes and boxes of CDs back home, mm. and DVDs and whatever else in my mother's attic that she keeps complaining about. But now I have two CDs, yeah, uh, the Prodigy, and I think I've got one that I picked up in Berlin from a street singer. Uh, but what I'm saying is people are more used to digital transactions like Netflix, mm. Spotify, Audible, yep. you know, whatever else, that maybe we are moving more to being willing to do that digital transaction and paying yeah, for Yeah, I think so. Well, that's it. Like we pay for, like I think we've personally here got access, like I've, we've got Spotify, Netflix, um, you know, binge a few other bits and pieces. We'll cycle through them. Like we might get a bit sick of Netflix for a while mm. and feel like we've watched that. Then we stop that subscription for a bit and then you might pick it back up again when they, you know, launch a show that you want to watch. So yeah. we sort of cycle through them. Um, I just get people to give me their passwords. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not commenting on that. We're not, um, we're not endorsing We're not endorsing that either. Uh, <laughs> a bit of no. skullduggery going on. Yeah. But look, I like. But, but Spotify is the only one I would keep all year round. I love, and that's it. I never, I was always sort of, sort of didn't, didn't want to sign up to the Spotify premium. And then you can do the family subscription. So my family mm. does that. And it's great. Like I, I use it every day. Um, I really and, engage and with that product. It's audio, great. Audiobooks as well, no? Audiobooks, podcasts. I even just like the fact that it sort of curates personal playlists for you. Like for me, I love it. Like that's yeah, great. Mine, I'm happy to engage mine, with that. My, what's disappointing me is mine's just giving me this because I just, I'm boring and listen to the same type of music. It's not giving me anything new. And I'm just I'll tell like, you what you need to do is when my kid was like six months old or whatnot and we had to play a lot of music in the car to stop them from crying, that mm. really skews your algorithm, I'm telling you. I had a lot of the wiggles <laughs> pop the up. Wiggles. Oh, yeah. if, you do, my, if you do go yeah. into it actually on Spotify, you can actually type in Daylist. Yeah, I love the Daylist. It's, and like, it, it's a cracker. And it gives you like an, every half a day, it gives you a new playlist. What is my one today? Dearest, peaceful piano Friday morning. See, that's nice. What's you, mine? I'll tell you what mine is. You listen to modern classical and studying on Friday mornings. Here's some <laughs> peaceful studying, instrumental focus, beautiful and work. See, mine is chill, lo-fi music. What's mine say? You listen to bluesy and rare groove on Friday mornings. Here's some lo-fi work beats. So, see, yeah. See, see, Matt doesn't even know what we're talking about because Matt is a hipster. I'm on Deezer. And he's I'm on, on Deezer. Deezer. 
He's like, I'm too good for Spotify. It's funny, like, I think back to all the, like, DVDs I used to have and CDs and such, like, probably only 10 years ago, and, like, I would buy seasons worth of television shows and whatnot. I I don't even know where they are now. Um, I probably bought heaps of programs on, like, iTunes. I don't even have iTunes on my computer anymore. Um, I, I, without wanting to sound like, a young whippersnapper. I'm just like, I don't know. You just sort of got to get with it a little bit sometimes. Like, exactly, I don't, Matt. Like, get with it. <laughs> I've, got a, like, I've got a Deezer subscription. I've had it for years. So we've got a family one. They do similar types. It's those, like we don't, you know, yeah. we we have all these subscriptions to streaming services because that's how we engage with, in our house, with that's content. how we engage with content. We don't have, and not on, not like in a pious sort of way, we don't have the telly plugged into free to air because um, I, like we watch ABC News, we got <laughs> SBS plugged in, um, and then everything else we just stream. That was the same with, you know? with me. It's like you can. The only thing with the, with going with going completely digital, not having access to the physical it's, it's solar flares. When the solar flares come, you're not going to have access to internet. So I was going to say you're going to be say, looking for those DVDs. I was going to say passing down. Welcome to the Carl Tucker old, podcast. You know? <laughs> passing down your old, um, passing down your old record collection. You know, when your grandfather passed yeah. away, and there's all these decent. So it's the thing though. I've got a Johnny Cash though. vinyls. You know, that are there or something. Yeah, you're not going to have that anymore once you, once you've passed yeah. on. You no legacy to leave your children of Neil yeah, Diamond. Yeah, no, I can't August give my night. kid like my 2016 Spotify playlist from June or whatever it was that I made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't know. What you could provide, and this is this is, could be part of it, is you could actually provide a legacy of your yearly Spotify playlist, what you've played mm. that year. And mm. when you're like, maybe it's a podcast for your next death series, mm. <laughs> uh, you, you, can, you can provide them with a playlist of your life and how yeah. over the age of like 12 to 80, how your musical mm. chests change. Yeah. So maybe and that's, that's it. Like who knows what's going to happen in the future with that. Like there is a lot of information and data that's now, just flying around um, and what it, what sort of story it tells about, about us each individually, you would be able to like, that would be so interesting to quantify that one day. Like I'm sure there would be, I don't know, I don't want to know. But I think, I do think there is a server somewhere for somebody who can come and delete everything when you pass away, just quickly go in and delete your search. The weird stuff that I Google for work where I'm like, please don't, I don't want anyone to see what mental thing I've just Googled. Well, I, yeah. I, I have a friend who works in a government department and um, they were searching for pubs in Canberra. Mm-hmm. And one of the, uh, one of the best pubs in Glasgow, uh, Canberra is Molly's. Yeah. They were Googling Molly. So they were Googling <laughs> Molly in the workplace. And, yeah. uh, and there was a few questions. Matt, yeah, just so you know, uh, Molly, <laughs> Molly, Molly is a street name. And it, the fact that Maddie knows what it is tells us a story. Um, yeah. But Molly is the street name for MDMA. Oh, right, yeah. Okay. I, I didn't know that. I'm glad you clarified because yeah, it's just me being a, hence, yeah, me hence, being hence a boomer. Hence, this is actually a plain shirt. You just, <laughs> you just been on the MDMA, Molly. Um, we're getting to the silly point of the podcast. That's now. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, but going back to summarize, mm. I do think that diversity is an important part of agriculture. Yeah. I think more views. I don't think it goes beyond sort of female representation in agriculture. Yes. Mm. I think when you say about Matt about representation of disabled people, disability is not a visual thing either. So there can be no, no, people there yeah, who correct. are disabled who don't show it whether it's neurodivergency or other 
disabilities. Mm. I think I think when you look at the numbers, though, they're still not represented oh, be, to the level they are in society at, at all. It right? would mm. be it'll be way small. I would hazard guess that it would be less than five percent of board mm. members have yeah. a disability. Yeah, I think something that's also important here to note um, is when we talk about, or when I personally talk about diversity and increasing diversity, I think it's important to note that <clears throat> striving towards that doesn't take anything from anybody else. It's not no. taking mm. away from, let's say, men in agriculture. No one's trying to take anything from people to give to others. It's about creating sort of like equity and accessibility and giving giving everyone that fair opportunity to get amongst it, really. Um, if it just so happens that we have um, a, a a landscape where everyone and anyone can put their hand up and apply, put their resume forth for a position, and then it's up to you guys to just duke it out in terms of who's the best at that job. That's, I think, the the goal because it's not mm. saying that executive positions have to only be held by women. It's like you just need to have everyone has the capacity to have a fair go um, and then the right person with the right skill set and right attitude, et cetera, is put in that position. But um, at the moment, that accessibility is not there. I think a big a big chunk of it is opinions. Like I'm a big view, big believer in diversity of opinions, mm-hmm. and, and that comes yeah. from a diversity of backgrounds. Yes, and and that's where like sort of vanilla, sort of the same sort of type of people in the role removes that. And as the old yes. Scottish expression says, too much agreement kills the chat. Yeah, that's it. You can't just all sort of sit in a bubble. I feel this way a lot of time with, like, say, friendship groups and such with, like, even just on social media. Like, we might all have the same opinion about whatever, but we're actually all of us agreeing and going, yes, that is actively terrible what's happening in blah, blah, blah. But, like, none of us have actually achieved anything by just all patting each other on the back and having the same viewpoint. Like, to me, it's futile. Um, It doesn't mean you have to get into argy-bargy with everybody all the time. It means... Your your opinion has to be challenged on things. You also have to take on board new information and new perspectives, and that can only come about from having different perspectives and having different experiences. Um, and and I think, like in turn, hmm, sorry, yes, I, I think I think you're right because I think like Matt and I sometimes disagree. We might come across as disagreeing on the podcast, but sometimes it's just a case of a bit of devil's avocado, and mm. that we've got to have. A diversity of opinion and sometimes debating an issue you can debate an issue even if you don't agree with what you're actually saying yeah it's I agree. about yeah. it's about to facilitate a conversation and to facilitate a different point of view no, i agree mm. i agree with that but now I for disagree the purposes of that. extending the extending <laughs> the podcast i have to disagree with what you just said but I, um but anyway i i guess to end the podcast the best way to end it would be to say that if anyone in agriculture asx listed rdc or community board is looking to add to their diversity bit of scottishness lower social <laughs> low, low social economic uh scottishness um i'm more than happy to come along you're looking for a job anything to get away from that <laughs> there we go i disagree um <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there. I think. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Thanks for uh, those articles. They're very interesting things you're putting out there. So keep up. The, and uh... and thanks to Jimmy who passed me on the article so I can get beyond the paywall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, if you haven't haven't seen the article, we'll we'll kind of we'll cut and paste it and put it up online for free. Oh, don't! It gives me such an anxiety when people do that. Actually, what what I can do is, is you know, like uh, you've got like Tom Hardy does like nursery rhymes. Oh yeah, yeah. you're going to recite the article. I, I, I could do a audio. podcast where where I, where I just recite Maddie's articles. And, 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 see, the New Yorker does that. They have audio embedded in their articles, so you can listen to it instead of reading it. Uh, that's accessible. I remember, I, I remember years ago being in a regional spot. I can't remember where it was. It was some interstate somewhere on a weekend, and the local radio, like the local community radio station, was coming through, and it was these two old ladies reading through the local paper. That was the morning segment. So it was like two hours. These, these two like old ladies that. reading through the local paper. I could, it was unreal. I can't remember. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. I feel like they do that for blind people. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that probably, well, that's accessible, isn't it? Yeah. Early yeah. in her career in Australia's red meat industry, meat <laughs> businesswoman Australian chair Stacey McKenna noted she was often the only female in a room full of men. There you Are go. You you... ramping up the accent there. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, funny enough, when I'm reading stuff aloud, is the only time I have an actual proper Scottish accent. <laughs> like, so when I read aloud, it comes through Scottish. So, well, we'll, ch- we'll check with the subscribe base, see if there's an appetite for Andrew's. You could do like a once a day reading of your of, of a selected, you know, item. Selected, curated selection. Selected Barnes poetry. Yeah, yeah. My love <laughs> is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. <laughs> All right. We'll see. We'll see if there's an appetite for Andrew's. You know, sure. podcast podcast radio show where he reads out articles from the well, Weekly we could, Times. So. What we could do is we could put that behind a paywall and yeah. we'll see, see what your hit rate is. Well, we'll see who's more willing to read your articles or have me or read them. To them. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it'll don't think it'll take off. But anyway, we, we might leave it there. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on, mate. Um, it's been good chatting, interesting topics. And thank you uh, very much for having me. We'll see you when you got nothing on. See you when you got nothing on. Yeah, that's no worries.